encourage you to take a Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we continue our consideration in this great book that the Holy Spirit gave us through the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 1. read again in our hearing today, beginning with verse number 3, and read down through verse number uh, 10. Let's hear God's Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. May God be pleased to bless His Word and may His people say, Let's pray together. Father, again, we come before You in prayer, asking now Your mercies upon us as we consider Your Word. We've come today hungering and thirsting to hear from you, to drink from the well of life. We've come as your people, the corporate body of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you, Lord, for the worship that has been ours to engage in, for your blessings upon us thus far, for prayers that have been offered, for the word of God that has been read, for all that has gone into the worship to this point. We know that your people have come from various places, from various experiences of the past week. And we come now to gather ourselves together um, to enjoy the fellowship of the saints, to enjoy communion uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, to study and to, to learn together, to hear from you, from your word. And I pray that you would bless the word as it goes forth. Send it forth, Lord. And may it be Uh, powerful, may it be clear, may it be spoken with love uh, for you and fear and reverence, Lord, that it is indeed your word, and may it also be spoken with love for the hearers of it, 
And would it bring forth abundant fruit to the glory of Christ, in whose name I now pray. Amen. Now, we have recently been considering verse 7, and somewhat 8, but mainly verse 7 of Ephesians 1. And I might just simply point out at this junction where we are that uh, verse 7, the latter part of verse 7, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace is technically and grammatically what is called an apposition. Now, I think you've heard that term before. I think probably Pastor Tyler has used that term not too terribly long ago. Um, an apposition is a, is a grammatical um, technique. In some ways, it's like an adjective. Um, in some ways, it's almost like a prepositional phrase, but it's, um, it's where you would place a word along or a phrase alongside another phrase to, to give clarity or to give um, a little bit more, um, sometimes maybe... Um, I can almost say unk to the first part of, of what's been said. If I said, um, I always pick on Damien. If I said Damien the cabinet maker, uh, the cabinet maker would be the appositional phrase to Damien. It's, it tells you more about who Damien is. And so what I mean by saying it's an apposition, um, a phrase here, the, the latter part, the forgiveness of our trespasses, is an apposition or an appositional phrase to the first part of the verse, it gives us more explanation of what it means to be redeemed. That's what I'm saying. That's the way it's used in the structure grammatically uh, in the sentence, in the phrase here. Now, we've noted that redemption denotes a release. It's setting free from a situation that the person who is set free from is powerless to get themselves free from. That means, that, that's what redemption means. It's to pay a ransom to set one free uh, from a situation they're unable to free themselves from. And we've pointed out that forgiveness means a dismissal and actually it means a sending away. And we looked at and we've used Psalm 103, verse 12, as somewhat an explanation of forgiveness. Uh, and that passage reads, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. And so we're redeemed. We are ransomed by a price. And in that ransoming, God separates from us our sins as far, which is, it can be no more greater distance as the east is from the west. He buries our sins as it were in the deepest part of the ocean. And so forgiveness is a deeper, further, greater explanation, if you would, of redemption. Forgiveness is a greater explanation of redemption. It's an appositional phrase. We are forgiven. God's people were, as Brother Al was pointing out in the reading, we were in bondage. We look at Ephesians chapter 2. If you would turn there to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a moment. The first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins 
in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Have you ever dealt with someone who is an addict? And, and, and ask them, not ask them, well, maybe sometimes you have, but you, in your mind you get so frustrated and maybe actually physically just kind of shake them sometimes and go, why can't you see? Well, it's their nature. And they are caught up in it. And it's like, what's wrong with you? Or sometimes you can deal with somebody else in another situation. And it's like, why can't you see? And I'm sure people have done the same with me. I'm sure my dad did the same thing with me at times. I'm going to bop me on the head and go, what's wrong with you, son? <laughs> well, it was my nature. And my nature was I was walking according to the course of this world. And my eyes were shut. And my hard heart was hard. It wasn't always a mind problem, it's a heart problem. It's a sin problem. And that's the way we walked. But we're redeemed. We have been ransomed. We have been purchased with a price, not Silver and gold, as we looked at earlier, not with that which is corruptible, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we have been redeemed, we are freed, we're freed from that, our eyes are opened, and all of a sudden that which we could not see, that which we could not hear, that which made no sense to us at all, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, and we embrace that. We want that. We thirst for that. We desire that, and that being Christ. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now that language, look back where we are in Ephesians 1. Even as He chose us, verse 4, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, 
We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. The language is just, there it is, back and forth between chapter 1 and chapter 2. And now, as also has been mentioned, I think, in the reading earlier, not only are our sins separated from us, but now we have access to the Father. We have access to the Holy of Holies through Christ our Lord. And we now are part of the family of God, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And this verse 8, this redemption, this forgiveness is ours according to, the redeem, according to the riches of His grace. And this grace is lavished upon us. And that's very close, is it not, akin to our lesson that we were in last week in our small group. By the way, if you're not in a small group, we really would love for you to be in our small group because we have a great small group. I had a great teacher last time. I'm not saying anything about that, Pastor Tyler. Our group's very good, though. Now, a sip of tea. Uh, a great analogy and the backdrop for this redemption, this forgiveness uh, that we're reading about here in Ephesians and, and uh, in the New Testament, the, the analogy for it and, and somewhat the template for it uh, from the Old Testament is Israel's deliverance from Egypt. That's, that's the analogy that you find, that, that, you, that you see in the Scripture. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, we read, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery, same thing that we're in is, as we're born into the world, we're born into slavery of sin. But I will bring you out from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to, my, to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. In Deuteronomy 7, 8, one more verse on that. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, Yahweh redeemed the people from the slavery of Egypt because He had made a covenant with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's because of this covenant that he remembers, that we read in Scripture, that he remembered, he hears the groaning of the people of Israel, he recalls the covenant, and he goes to free Israel, which is not really a nation at that point, but he goes to free them, and he does this to make a particular, peculiar people unto himself, that He would be their God and that they would be His people, a peculiar people among all the nations and peoples of the earth. Then as you read the prelude, or the prologue if you prefer, to the Ten Commandments, 
you see this statement made. And listen to it. If you want to turn there, you may. It's in Exodus 20, verse, the first three verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And what I want you to note there is deliverance came before duty. Did you hear me? Deliverance came before duty. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods. Now, question 49, which we've already read and I don't have it in front of me um, in its entirety. I should have, but I don't. But in question 49 of the catechism, that same question is entertained about um, living holy lives. And it goes back to God being our God and Him delivering us. Well, this is redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this is the background. This is the analogy that's used in the New Testament for redemption and forgiveness that we've been looking at now for about three weeks. So we've got this comparison and they're very similar in a lot of ways, but in the new covenant, redemption is similar, but it's greater. And it's far better. It's far better. In the Old Testament, it was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was temporary. It was a sign of the real and of what was permanent. And redemption in the New Covenant, the design of it was more inclusive than that in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, the design of it is inclusive of peoples from every nation, kindred, tongue, and tribe. It's not isolated to just one people or one nation. But it includes people from all over everywhere. The results are more conclusive. Again, the Lord initiates and redeems. And the Lord writes on the hearts and the minds of His people His law, not on tablets of stone. And He says, I will be your God and you will be My people. And I will put my spirit in you. And he remembers our sins no more. Not just year to year to year to year to year to year. Like in the old covenant of the high priest. Where it was just put off, pushed off one year to the next year to the next year to the next year. And the new covenant is I will remember them no more. No more. And it's not simply the formation of a nation, even though we're called a holy nation, it's the formation of a family. Brothers and sisters. And Abba, Father. And its means is, are 
or I should say is much or its mean is much more decisive. And by that I mean it's by the God man, Jesus Christ. Now I mentioned this last week and I want you, I just want to read this as I pass through it kind of quickly with you. But I mentioned this last Lord's Day, and that's Hebrews 10. So turn to Hebrews 10 for just a moment. And I want to keep moving forward because I keep moving towards something else really, but I don't want to just leave this on the line there on the ground as it were. So I just want to read with you and make a few observations as we note this on our way forward. In Hebrews chapter 10, and really this whole middle section is so rich on these comparisons and contrast between the old and the new. But let's begin here at Hebrews 10.1. For since the law, and he's talking about the Mosaic law, which is clear, especially if you just back up a little bit into 9. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers having once been cleansed, but no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, the Mosaic law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, He has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, 
This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, <coughs> excuse me, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, you, you see, you follow that reading pretty clearly, I hope. He is contrasting the old high priest Levitical offering that the priest went into the, to the Holy of Holies every year, making sacrifice. And he says, and every year they did that, it's a remembering of sin. But Christ doesn't do that. And that that they did back then, it did not remove sin. And God took no pleasure in that. And you read Romans 4, and, it, and it's just pushing things as it were forward to that point in time that Christ came in the flesh. And when Christ came in the flesh as the God-man, He once and for all makes one sacrifice. And He removes those sins. He is the great Redeemer. The only mediator between God and man. And He comes as the God-man. An angel couldn't do that. A man couldn't do that. God didn't do that. It takes the God-man to do that. Because man had sinned, man would pay the price. But man can't do that. He can't pay the price. Because man isn't perfect. Man is a sinner. Thus the virgin birth. Man can't keep the law perfectly. Thus Christ comes as the Son of God, keeping the law perfectly. His act of obedience. He is the perfect an unblemished Lamb of God who can go to the cross and there is the, is the passive sacrifice of Christ as He offers His perfect, as the perfect Lamb of God, He dies on the cross. And there is that transaction made. My sins poured on Him, His righteousness imputed to me. Once for all, no more sin. And it's done away with. That old system's done away with. Which is always, again, has been one of those things in my mind that I just cannot fathom. Why under heaven, we said this more than once, but why under heaven do people want to build a temple? To me, it's blasphemous. They would rebuild a temple and reinstitute sacrificial worship. And I go, my gracious, have you ever read Hebrews? God tore it down. He said, once, once, it's my son, once. And why would a man or men want to rebuild the thing? And why would I want to go there and honor it? I mean, maybe it's a historical relic. But that's it. Christ came. Christ redeemed us from our sins. Once and for all. And he's not in a grave. He's not on a cross. When he did it, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He is, as we heard this morning, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so he goes on, the writer does in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, because this is who Christ is, he is the God-man. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, 
Could you go into that holy place under that old covenant? You dare not. But now you are a child of the king. You are a son and daughter of God. And now he says, come. Before he said, stay away. Now he says, come. And now you have confidence to come to the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened, which wasn't open, but now He is, that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then he goes on to exhort us to consider others, to stir them up, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is the redemption. And really it's almost, it almost goes without saying, of course I'm going to say it, is the next part. I hope you've already gotten it, but now it's the riches of His lavished grace. The riches of His lavished grace. And the, the plain meaning of that statement Verse, the end of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8, according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. The plain meaning of that statement is simple enough. God's forgiveness is in proportion to His grace. How great is His grace? Well, God doesn't give stingily. He is not a half-hearted giver. His grace is inexhaustible. I love what Lloyd-Jones writes about this. Although the saints of the centuries have been drinking out of this fountain, it is as full as it was at the beginning. Millions yet will drink out of it, but it will still be bubbling up to the surface. It matters not what your need or problem may be. There is nothing that can ever afflict the human heart or the human life for which provision has not already been made if any man comes unto me, says Christ, he will never thirst again. And I think about that, I suppose frequently would be a right way of describing it. We gather to worship today, and we do so with a promise of God blessing and being able to provide for our needs. And as we gather to worship, Thousands and yet millions of believers across the earth gather. Some in great places and many hundreds at once gather and others in small places under awful circumstances hidden away. And God is great and God is rich and God meets with all believers who gather in faith in the name of our Savior and that we all drink from the same well 
and there's no less for them or for us. We can all drink alike, and our thirst can be slaked in that fountain. And if you have unconfessed sin, and if you've never been saved, or did not know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you come to Christ today, and 10 million and, I don't know if there's that many, 100,000 in North Korea did today, that grace isn't depleted. There's grace sufficient. One here, and 1,000 there, and a million there, matters not, in the sense of the greatness of God's grace, it matters not. So it's easy to grasp the meaning of the sentence and that structure of it. That's what I mean when I say that. But it's not so easy to comprehend it. Because in Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, Paul prays that we can grasp it. We can grasp the glory of God's grace. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, he invites us to measure it. I'll just break out all your measuring instruments. You know, we've sent telescopes out into the far-flung reaches of space. Paul says, well, get out your telescopes and your microscopes and your micrometers, and, and you just measure the grace of God. He's daring us, as it were, knowing we can't. It's not comprehensible. Even though I can understand the sentence and the structure of the sentence, I can't comprehend it. And it seems ever since the Damascus Road, Paul was enamored and captivated and a student and a teacher of God's amazing grace. His greetings and benedictions are filled with it. Uh, He is amazed that he's a preacher of it. As all of us should be amazed that we are sinners saved by it. And from Romans to Philemon, I didn't put Hebrews in here, but from Romans to Philemon, there are reference after reference after reference to the grace of God, glorious grace, abounding grace, justifying grace, abundance of grace, surpassing grace, 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 grace. You read through these epistles of Paul. Paul knew grace as much as a man, I suppose, can know it. And he wanted others that he came in contact with to know this great grace. And I reckon that would be a true sign of being saved by grace. Do you want others to know it? Really? Really? Well, the riches of grace and grace by itself indicates it's free. God is not... God initiates salvation. He doesn't have to, I suppose, other than by His nature. God is not responding. Remember, God predestined and He elects. Uh, He provides us while we're still sinners. He gives the best, that is Christ, and He gives abundantly. And I, I want to move on because I want to, in the last few minutes here, I want to move to another analogy and I want to try to move through it quickly to try to do what Paul challenged us to do knowing we can't do it. But just to try to draw out the picture because 
this lavished, this, this, that we have this redemption, this forgiveness, and it's lavished. This grace, the riches of His grace that's lavished on us. And I want to do that. And I want to consider that with you by considering another analogy. A New Testament. And it's a parable. And it's in Luke 15. So turn, and, turn to Luke 15 for just a moment. And we'll try to we'll try to move through this, but not to the point that you don't see it. I hope <clears throat> you've heard of the, you know the parable of the prodigal, right? So if I had asked you this morning to turn to the parable of the prodigal father, where would you have gone? I really think sometimes this parable's name wrong. How many sons does the father have? Two. Is this parable all about the prodigal? What is this parable about? Why did Jesus even give this parable? Let's back up to the first part of Luke 15 and we'll see why he gives the parable. And then maybe we can kind of go from there and see it's not all about the prodigal. In fact, he's just one of two sons. And the second son is just as important as the first son, or the prodigal son. Luke 15, verse 1, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling said, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Hmm. Then he told them this parable. And he begins with a parable of a hundred sheep. Then verse 8, or what woman? And then he tells them a parable of the, of the ten silver coins. Verse 11, and he said, and he tells them another parable of two sons. He goes from a hundred to ten to two. And they're all tied together. He goes from sheep to coins to sons. And it really doesn't matter so much whether he's talking about sheep, coins, or sons. Really. What's he talking about? What is Christ talking about? Now, I agree the first two parables are probably talking more from the heaven side, the divine side, and the third parable is probably talking more from the flip side. And we get that in Ephesians too. He flips it. Talks from the divine side, then he flips it to the human side. But he's talking about the Father's amazing grace and love, those riches of grace, that surpassing richness of grace, that lavished upon us, and how he searches out and saves. So what does the word prodigal mean, by the way? It has a couple of meanings. And I would suggest that when we're talking about the son, it, it has the first meaning. But when we talk about the father, it has a second meaning. And the first meaning, it means to, to be reckless and wasteful and extravagant. I can't say the word. Extravagant. And that would be the first. That would be the son. That's what he was. Wasteful. The second meaning is to to give and to, to give away something on a lavish scale. And what do we see the Father doing? 
back in Ephesians, giving on a lavish scale. And in fact, that's the word it's used in the ESV. The riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. So really I think of it more as the parable of the Father's prodigious grace is the way I think of this parable. But let's do an overview. So we've got, we've got these, these, these three parables. They're all coming down to one thing. But now, and we see what they're a response to. But central to all of this is the Father's love. Um, so let's start with the, 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 the younger son, the, the prodigal son, uh, who's called the prodigal son. Now, uh, Dr. Edmund Clooney writes this, this. This youth is living at home. He's hating every minute of it. Everything turns him off. The household, the farming, the lifestyle of his father. There's only one thing about his father that he does like. The old man's money. But the prospects of cashing in on it are remote. His father shows no signs of an early decease. At last, the young man's patient runs, patience runs out. Father, he says, give me what's coming to me from your estate. And so he demands his inheritance from his father, which basically in that culture is, I wish you were dead. Go ahead and give me what's mine. I'm going. And so he gets from his father uh, what is his. And a lot of that, no doubt, would be uh, uh, land or stock, and that would be things that his dad had worked hard for. But none of that matters to this boy. He cashes out, and he leaves home. That's, that's what he wants to do. In verses 13 through 16, uh, this boy disgraces his father. He debases himself. And he is, so we could say it, we can use some, several D's here of this, of this boy. He is demanding. He despises his father. He departs from home. Uh, he is a disgrace to himself and to his family. And, he, and, and at last, he is de, de, debases him, his own self. He's living in a pig parlor and eating what swine would not eat. And we could say that the prodigal is a vivid picture of a lost sinner. Now, keep this in your mind. I should have said this already. Going back to the very beginning of, of Luke 15. So we've got a couple of things being represented here. We've got the religious lost and we have unconverted. We've got Pharisees, Gentiles. And this boy represents, and he is a vivid picture to us, of a lost sinner who's fleeing away. He's like, the, he's like in John 3, that the, the sinner prefers darkness to light because his deeds are evil. And he will not come to God. You ever flipped over an old log and there's a bugs under it and the light shines on it and what happens? They skittle out of the way. That's this boy. Get out of here. He sows to the flesh. His life is consumed with the pleasures of the flesh. He's seeking to gratify himself and eventually he will reap what he's sowing. And then his dreams become his nightmares. And his freedoms become his bondage. And this prodigal is also a picture of a repentant sinner. By grace, he comes to his senses. That's what we read about him. When he comes to himself, he comes to his senses. And he realizes what's there. He begins to rehearse what he will say and that he will return home to his father. 
And he has this speech all made up in his mind, what he will say. And he goes home, and all that's great, but I want to point this out. <coughs> he still has too low of a view of his father. And that's the case of most of us and most sinners. They have too low of a view of their father, of the father. Because he gets home and he says, I'm not worthy to be called. Well, we shouldn't be arrogant. I'm not suggesting we should be. But he doesn't really grasp grace. He doesn't really get grace. And then in verses 25 through 30, we have the resentful older son. He does not demand his inheritance. He does not leave home. He does not waste his father's possessions. He does not disgrace himself. He stays home. He works. He tends the fields. He does his chores. Maybe he even does the chores of two since his brother's left. But he is resentful. He resents his brother and he resents his father. And in verses 25 and 26, he demands of his father and of others, what do these things mean? When his father brings out the ring, the shoes, the calf, the robe, what do these things mean? Verse 29, he is dissatisfied with his father's actions. Dare you receive home this boy again? Verses 28 through 30, he disgraces his father by accusing him of favoritism, of being stingy. All these years I've been here, you never gave me a fatty calf. I never had a party with my friends. And yet, this boy comes home and look at you. Look what you do for him. And he rejects his father's offers of kindness and mercy and grace and all the overtures he offers towards his son, he rejects every one of them. He is resentful. And I would suggest he is a picture of the religious unconverted. And yes, they are such. Mark 10, the rich young ruler. Perhaps Nicodemus, the early young Nicodemus, the one that came in night, the Judas Iscariots, the seed on the stony ground. They're religious, but they're resentful. They seize every opportunity to absent themselves or be away from God and His people. They can go through the motions of religion, but there's no joy. They consider service a burden and a drudgery. They, be, they believe that God is indebted to them. They might serve, but they do it for reward only. And they resent true believers. Kind of like Cain and Abel. And they're really mad at God, but they can transfer it to someone else. And they would accuse them of hypocrisy, of legalism, and they reject their joy and their sincerity. And again, I will quote from Dr. Clowney. The older brother flings down his staff, folds his arms, and begins a slow burn. A celebration indeed. 
He's not too surprised that the prodigal has shown up. But what has he done to deserve this? He should be flogged rather than fetid. The brother is disgusted at his father's behavior. At least he can't expect me to celebrate, he thinks. After all, the property has been divided, and what remains is mine. That best robe, that signet ring, and most particularly that sleek calf, save for a great feast. He despises the father's joy, is made furious by his grace, and resents his love for the prodigal. And then there's the father. And he's really the picture of this parable. The sons are important, but it's the father that's really the center point. Verses 20 through 24, 28 through 32, it's the father who is willing, accepting the gracious, who sees the prodigal. He's willing to accept him, to receive him. You know, we always talk about accepting the Lord and really, it's the Lord who receives us. And the boy that comes home is not the boy that leaves. The boy that comes home, if you get a picture of him, he's the one that's been living with the hogs. Now try to, try to put that picture in your mind. The boy who leaves is dressed in finery. He's decked out. He's nice. He's pleasing. He comes from a well-to-do home. I'm sure he had on fine clothes. I don't know if he's riding a horse or not. In my mind, he's going out of there high on high cotton, as we'd say. But the boy that comes home looks worse than the worst kid row bum you can see. He comes home, no doubt, with sores and cuts and scars and rags. And yet, his father sees him. And he recognizes him. And he goes to him with open arms and embraces him with all the filth and nastiness on him. Let's have a celebration. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over the righteous that don't. Many righteous that don't think they need any repenting. The older son the father goes to the older son, that stubborn, hard-hearted son, and he entreats him. Don't feel this way. Don't be this way. Son, I would have given you a calf. Everything I have is yours. And he entreats the son. He treats him kindly. He does not respond to his accusations. But he's gracious to him. He implores him with tenderness, affection, and names of endearment. And yet that son is hard. But that parable is kind of left open, isn't it? It's kind of like those stories you read, what's going to happen? Well, if he is truly representative of a people and a group of people, we know what happened. But in some ways, the story still open a little bit. But in both cases, and with both sons, the father acted from abundance, not from lack. He acted out of abundance. He acted willingly, mercifully, 
patient. And all that's abounding towards these sons. There are riches that are lavished on them. They're not worthy of them, but they, he just lavishes on them. Now, the question for you and me is this. Which son best describes you? Or me? In Ephesians, Paul speaks about a great God and a great Savior. And he says that it's by the blood of the Son of God that we have redemption, forgiveness of our trespasses, and that's according to the riches of His grace that He's lavished upon us. You have had grace lavished upon you. I'll end with this quote by John Newton. Although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. And I pray we never forget those two truths. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are a great Lord and Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That there is no limit to Your supply of grace, of mercy, of kindness, of love. And for all that are present here today, no matter what their sin may be, whether it be sins of long ago that are in my minds, or whether... We cannot think of anything in particular. Yet we know that you are a gracious God. Lord, for difficulties in life that we may be struggling with, whether it be personal, domestic issues, whether it be employment, job related, whether it be matters of finance, whether it's loneliness, whether it's whatever it is, Lord, we know that with you there is no limit you're not a God that's limited to one area. You're not the God of the ocean or the sky or the fields. But you're the God of all. And that your grace and your kindness and your mercy reaches to every aspect and part of our life and our being. And we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you, Lord, that you have looked down upon us and you've had mercy. We want to exalt your high and holy name. And we want to thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be mindful of who he is and what he's done. And we never want to forget that. And we never want to become bored with that. We never want to be um, just lackadaisical with the fact of, of his sacrifice in our stead. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Dismiss us, Lord, with your mercy, your grace, your kindness. Bless us as we sing this hymn. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. this time, if you would, please stand. And as we've heard of the great grace of our God, 
Let our hearts and voices raise loud thanksgivings to our God. Let us sing together hymn number 318.